and they said that 12% of textile waste happens during this design and production phase. That doesn't seem like that much when you're looking globally, like 12% is something like 6.3 million tons that mills send to brands. Brands look through hundreds of thousands of these to choose what fabrics they're gonna use for a season. Then after they choose, they really just toss these. And prior to Fab Scrap, that was all going to landfill. So for us, we save things for reuse if they're one yard or more. Things that are smaller than a yard and don't contain spandex will be like destined for our shredder. Welcome to Mindful Businesses presented by Sarani and I'm your host Vidya Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands that are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic and environmental practices. Today we talk with Jessica Schreiber, CEO and founder of FabScrap, Recycling and Reusing Textile Waste. She joins us from Brooklyn, New York. Welcome, Jessica. Hi, thank you for having me. We have these statistics which tells us that 2.1 tons of greenhouse gas emissions are caused by the fashion industry. This includes various components, right from when the seeds are sowed or the fabric is manufactured to when it reaches us and when we dispose. So that's the whole from the start to the end. What percent of the textiles, new and used, end up in the landfill? It's hard to say. I think based on where we're working now at FabScrap, we're working with pre-consumer textile waste. So that's fabric that is left over in the design process, excess to the design process, or unused in the design process. In that regard, it depends if it's proprietary or non-proprietary, how much goes to landfill. I think the most accurate number that I've found comes from a study by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, and they said that 12% of textile waste happens during this design and production phase. That doesn't seem like that much when you're looking globally, like 12% is something like 6.3 million tons, which really, really adds up when that's happening every year. What are the different parts in the pre-production textile waste. It could be sampling, it could be just not planning properly, just repeat, redo repeats. So many other things along that pre-production part can contribute. What are some of them? We see most is fabric swatches. So when mills are coming out with their new fabrics every season, every couple months, they send these swatch cards that are basically like a cardboard or piece of paper with a six by six swatch of fabric, either taped or stapled or glued to it with all of the information about the cost of the fabric, what it's made of, the colorways it comes in. By far, it's actually like 75% of what we pick up are fabric swatches that mills send to brands. Brands look through hundreds of thousands of these to choose what fabrics they're going to use for a season. Then after they choose, they really just toss these. And prior to Fab Scrap, that was all going to landfill. In addition to swatches, we'll get sample yardage, which is like one or two yard cuts where they're just wanting to see the full like pattern repeat before they select the fabric, understand the weight, the drape, etc. from sample swatch, order sample yardage. Sometimes mills have minimums, so they'll only let you order the fabric if you order 50 rolls. And not every brand can use or needs 50 rolls, so there's always excess in that process too. 
And then I think sometimes the last piece is actual sample garments will go back and forth between design and production multiple times so that they can correct things, make notes. And then once everything is sort of finalized, that sample or mock-up garment will, will get tossed. And that's kind of the universe of what, of what we're hoping to address and divert from landfill. There are different types of fabrics based on the raw materials or the weave, or is there one fabric in particular, which is hard to decompose, hard to, I can imagine that cotton fabric will probably, our lifetime, biodegrade. But if it's something which has more elastic polyester, it'll take a longer time. Right. And we're trying not to send any material to landfill where it has to biodegrade. Like our goal is to recycle or reuse as much as possible. I would say probably the most difficult thing for us to process is fabrics with spandex content. Spandex being a rubber additive to the fabric or to the fiber that allows it to stretch. And that includes spandex, lycra, elastic, elastane, really like any stretch additive makes it really hard for us to process. We're more downcycling than recycling in that we can take fabrics without spandex and they get shredded and it becomes insulation, carpet padding, mattress stuffing. And even though it's not turning fabric back into fabric, which would be true recycling, it is extending the life of those fibers. It's continuing their like use for many more years and keeping them out of landfill. We can shred and turn into insulation, anything that doesn't have spandex in it. So I would say like that artificial stretch is probably the most difficult for us to find a home for. So I'm right now in Lafayette, Indiana. Our neighboring town is Brookston, Indiana. And there is a paper company, which is really well known amongst the watercolor artists worldwide. It's called Twin Rocker Handmade Paper. And we visited their setup one time. It's a small operation, just like in a warehouse. And they used the white undershirts and or just t-shirts which were white in color to make the paper and the paper is so beautiful it's unbelievable so that's the first time i realized that you can make paper from textile because most people think you make paper with wood pulp or you know bamboo pulp but this is the first time i realized that it can be actually used to make this really high quality paper that's really cool I've seen that work with natural fibers, making it into a pulp that then is pressed into paper. I think what's also interesting is they're now using wood pulp to make fabric. So they're really kind of like, it goes both ways. I think it's either Tencel or Modell. I think it's Tencel is made with a wood pulp. Right. So it's funny that it can go both ways. Yeah. So the beauty of your organization is that you make sure that they don't even end up reaching the landfill, right? You said you pick these little swatches and you shred them. Is it possible that we make quilts out of them or maybe use it for making some other piece of clothing? Theoretically, yes. Like definitely whether or not a material is reusable is super subjective, right? Like everything could be reused somehow with the right like creativity and the right thought process behind it. For us, we're working with over 650 brands now. We're picking up about 6,000 pounds a week. So when we're looking at reusable, we have to kind of think at scale. So for us, we save things for reuse if they're one yard or more. Things that are smaller than a yard and don't contain spandex will be 
like destined for our shredder. But we do pull out 100% cotton swatches. Those are really popular with quilters. And if we have volunteers who are helping us sort, if they see a swatch or a smaller piece that they want to keep, we definitely encourage them to keep them. We also keep smaller pieces of leather, sequins, lace, fur, because those things tend to be really popular. Theoretically, yes, you could do something creative with every swatch. But when we're picking up about 6,000 pounds a week and we're like thinking at scale, we had to kind of, we can't keep everything. We had to think about storage and turnover and what we could realistically redistribute. And it would be really hard to organize 6,000 pounds of swatches each week. So, but you would probably require that it be sorted by the raw material type, right? So that you can go for the appropriate purpose. So does it come sorted to you from the customer? It doesn't. It comes to us like on the original swatch card, the like cardboard back with all of the information about the mill, information about the fabric, the price, the colorways, et cetera. And so what's great is like when we have volunteers who help us sort through incoming material, volunteers don't have to have a deep fabric knowledge because all of the fabric swatches are labeled. And so as part of our training of volunteers, we teach them how to read a label. We let them know what things we're sorting out for reuse and what would be recycled. And so then they're able to to sort and help us in that way. So you are registered as a nonprofit. Yes. Why was that so important to you? Because, you know, this could be a business that you could actually monetize. Yeah. In fact, when I first pitched it to investors, I pitched it as a for-profit. We have, we're different from a lot of nonprofits in that we have sources of earned income. The brands that we work with pay a service fee the same way that they pay for trash pickup or paper recycling. We want them to pay for textile recycling and internalize the cost of their waste. Then we're also selling fabric through a thrift store. So between service fees and fabric sales, we're about 80% earned income. Where the nonprofit piece really comes into play is that we're gathering a lot of data about what this textile waste stream looks like, about sources, about solutions to it. And I think for the type of education that we want to do of individuals, of the companies we work with, eventually, hopefully informing policy, it makes sense for us to kind of maintain our neutrality as a nonprofit where there is no one person who owns this information or owns the system. I think it just gives us greater flexibility in achieving our mission. What is some of the information that you have collected, which you think will be valuable to us as we go forward to create a sustainable planet? So for every brand that works with us, each year they get an impact report. And that impact report lets them know how many times we picked up, how much we picked up, and then how what we picked up was sorted. And we're sorting into eight or nine different categories. So at any point we could let brands know how much what they send us is 100% cotton, how much is 100% wool, how much was denim, how much was reusable, again with our classification of reusable, how much was paper, how much goes to landfill. And the reason that like, as a really specific example of where that's useful is that's how we realized 75% of what we pick up are swatch cards and fabric headers from mills and how much of that was paper, how much time 
that took for us to deconstruct and make recyclable. And so as a next step, we can now approach brands and have them bring their mills to the table and we could discuss, hey, how could we swatch this or sample this differently? How could we make this swatching process much less wasteful or even just rank some of those swatches in terms of their deconstructability, their recyclability, so that that process can become more sustainable. Some of the swatches would probably have prints which are proprietary. How do you protect the brands? Why, how do the brands trust to hand over those prints? Because, you know, the fake goods market is so prolific. Everybody is trying to copy a Louis Vuitton or a Goyard bag or whatever, you know. So how do you protect? That was something that came up very early when I was doing focus groups for what Fab Scrap would become was this concern around proprietary materials. And so we actually have two different streams, like two different ways that we'll collect materials. Brands let us know what's proprietary by marking it black. So they'll put it in a black bag or they'll put it in a box marked black. They'll let us know what's not proprietary by marking it brown. They'll put it in a brown bag or label a roll brown. Volunteers only sort non-proprietary material. And so if they want to take something home or if they want to reuse something, totally fine. Only brown material goes into our thrift stores. Black material, all of the proprietary material is only sorted by the Fab Scrap team. It's never reused and it only goes into our shredding process. So that's one of the ways that brands can let us know, hey, we don't want this to be public. Keep it back of house. Make sure it's only recycled, not reused. And that was something that we did from day one because it was a, a big concern to brands. You seem so knowledgeable about this process. <laughs> How did you learn what it's here? <laughs> I appreciate that. It has been six years of like trial and error. Definitely. Like I researched this for a year before we launched and kind of spoke as much as I could to fashion companies about what was important to them, what services were needed, what data they would be interested in. So it's really been a lot of trial and error and just wanting to evolve as quickly as possible because the industry is changing so fast and so many more brands are asking for sustainability information or wanting to participate in these kinds of initiatives. And so, yeah, we've just had to grow really quickly and fully understand the needs as much as we could. What did you do before Fab Scrap? Before Fab Scrap, I worked at New York City's Department of Sanitation. I was actually overseeing the city's clothing recycling program. And New York City has a clothing recycling program. Yes. New York City has a clothing recycling program. It launched in 2011, and it's a free program. You can sign up for your apartment building to receive a donation bin. It goes in your basement or laundry room, and you can donate clothing, shoes, home goods, like from your apartment. And so when that program was launching, I started as an intern when that program launched and then was hired to help it grow. And then was overseeing that program for five years before starting Fab Scrap. So what did New York City do with all these recyclable textiles or used textiles? New York City works with a network of local nonprofits. So it was a city contract that went out to bid. Local nonprofits could bid to be the city's processor and like collector of the donations. So 
we were working with a local nonprofit called Housing Works, and right before I left, Goodwill was also involved. And so they were the ones who were picking up the clothing. It first goes to their thrift stores if they're able to resell it, and then into sort of the secondhand trade after that. I don't think there are many cities who have a textile recycling program. No, I think New York City was one of the first. And so it was really cool to be a part of that launching and sort of looking at the numbers and how it worked because a lot of other cities were interested in replicating that. And so I got to like speak to cities who were also considering launching something similar and just talk through our learnings, how things would look different in another city. Not all cities have the amount of apartment buildings (laughs) that New York does. And so like thinking through how that might look different in other parts of the country. So the brands who comply, they do it out of their own free will and are willing to pay someone to take their excess textiles. I would say free will, yes, but there is a decent amount of consumer pressure right now. (laughs) True. I know that sometimes consumers feel kind of powerless and it's sort of like vote with your dollar. But I just to like contradict that narrative that actually asking questions of brands like that can be really powerful. So many brands feel like they're being held accountable, like they need to share more information, like they need to have programs to show and data to show and some transparency to speak to. Yes, right now it's totally elective. I will say in New York City, if you're a business and 10% or more of your waste is fabric, you're required to recycle it. But there was really no easy way for companies to do that. Technically, it's a law. (laughs) I will say none of the companies that it was a law, I've never seen enforcement of that law. But I think more powerful than that legislation is actually the consumer and the consumer wanting answers and some accountability. So how big is the Fab Scrap team? We are now a team of 15. And you're primarily self-funded at this point, like 80%? Yeah, right now we're 80 to 85% earned income, depending on the year. We're definitely focusing more on fundraising now. I think we have sort of proven the concept. We definitely have a really large community of volunteers, of shoppers, of people who support our cause that we're working on doing more fundraising. But it was really, really important to me that while we accept public donations and they're so appreciated and let us do extra stuff, I wanted this to be funded by the industry because specifically the waste that we're targeting isn't created by the public. I can't like decide how much extra yardage a company orders in creating their next design. And so I really wanted the industry to fund this solution. And so we're really working with partners now who understand what we're trying to do, the opportunity that it is, and see this as an investment in the future of their industry and and have them invest in the growth and what's next. So you have all this data that you've collected over six years and you you go back to the brands and you tell them, see, you made so many samples which are going, which could be sold, some cannot be sold. You have all these scraps, you asked for 10 or, you know, booklets of the same thing. You could have done okay with just one. So have their practices changed after they received the data and information from you? That's a really interesting question. The intention is that yes, with more knowledge, they start to change their behavior. There's two things I think like we're not quite there yet. One is at first when brands start recycling with us, they're usually cleaning out some office or cleaning out a showroom. And so they have a lot of extra stuff to give. And then 
They're so happy to have an option that's not landfill or not incineration. What we actually see is brands starting to send us more material over time. Initially, when companies are with us, we see them give us more and more and more each year. We're now in a point where we've been working with companies for five years or more that we're starting to see that plateau and have conversations with them about reducing. And the reason that the service fee is so important is because that also is how they reduce their costs, is by finding other homes for the fabric, by reducing how much they're sampling. And so that really opens up the conversation for changing behavior. The other point I'll make is that when brands, like when we go through our onboarding process, then they understand that we can't shred spandex. I think that's a real learning moment for them in choosing fabrics and like thinking through what materials they choose because if we can't recycle spandex that means the consumer at the moment can't recycle spandex and so there's a lot that goes into the education that we're able to do about end-of-life options for these small pieces but have greater implications when they're creating a hundred thousand units of this material so those are two things that I think are important in behavior change that we'll start to see happen as we continue to work with brands more long term. So this is new technology which can be used to create digital fashion and in which the designer can create their garment even with the textiles for you to visually feel how it drapes on the body, how if you switch from leather to say silk, how this piece of garment would look on a mannequin or on a person. Are they going more towards uh, digital fashion or is there any movement towards digital fashion from the brands? I think there's a lot of interest in it. I haven't seen that really take off. I'm also not working at a brand, so it's hard for me to know the conversations that they're having around fabric selection and design. I think that there's interest in it. I think with fabrics, it's really hard to replicate a hand feel seeing something drape in person and replicate that on a screen. So I think it will probably take some time. I haven't seen it really affect how much material is used in the sampling process yet. There's probably potential for it. And I know there's interest in it, but I haven't seen it happen yet. If you come back to your organization structure, you have about 15 people who work for Fab Scrap and the others are volunteers. How many people do you have per week or per month volunteering to sort the 6,000 tons that you pick up? We have a team of 15 and each person is kind of head of a different department. Our community coordinator sort of oversees all of our volunteer operations. And we have two volunteer sessions every day for three hours. And after the three hour session, each volunteer gets to take home five pounds of fabric for free. So it's a great deal for students who are learning about fabrics, who need fabric for their projects, who have a low budget, but also emerging designers who want to source material for as low a cost as possible. So we do two sessions every day. There's usually eight to 10 people in each session. You can sign up for as many sessions. (laughs) Yeah, that's a lot of work. Just coordinating volunteers. Sure. If the same ones don't come back, you're retraining all of them to sort and... Yeah, definitely. Like we have a lot of new volunteers. We have a lot of return volunteers, which is great. So to date, we've had over 8,000 individuals volunteer with us, but many of them come back more than once, which is fantastic. 
since the simple math is over six years, you had 8,000 volunteers. So you have more than 1,200 per year. <laughs> My mind is spinning at yeah. the per day rate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's this also between both locations. Like we opened Philadelphia in November 2021. So it hasn't been open that long, but we have, we've seen growth in volunteers there and yeah, lots of repeat volunteers this year, we introduced sort of like a graduated volunteer program. So after you sort for 10 sessions, then you move into a reuse volunteer position where you help fold and sort the fabric that goes into the thrift store, go through some of the samples and see if they should be donated or shredded. And then after that, you can host and train as a volunteer, train other volunteers. So we're kind of graduating people through a more intimate like role with Fab Scrap as they volunteer with us more and more. We had someone this year who just did her 100th volunteer session. <laughs> so we're, we have a really great community of people who are involved. In a time where companies, corporations, or organizations are unable to find paid people to work, how are you able to find these volunteers? What is that you are giving them? Obviously, they're not getting paid. There's something else besides the five yards of fabric that can only last so long for you to keep coming back and so many of them coming back. What is your pitch to them? I definitely think the free fabric helps for people who are like home sewers. They tend to also be fabric collectors. <laughs> um, so definitely the free fabric helps. I think there's a few things that like are really intriguing about volunteering here. One is like fashion tends to be very exclusionary and sort of like happen behind closed doors. And this is sort of the excess of fashion just made public. And so you really get to see behind the scenes, you can get a little bit of trend forecasting because you're seeing what all of these companies are sampling, the fabrics that they're looking through. Also for people who are in school and learning about fashion and design, it's a great way to learn about fabrics because in a sorting session, you could touch a hundred different kinds of fabrics and you're seeing what that looks like with a label. So you can kind of put a fiber to a feel. And yeah, I think outside of sort of those direct fashion focused interests in volunteering, New York City, and I know lots of other places in the country, has just a really strong sustainability community and zero waste community and wanting to be involved in sort of diverting as much as possible from landfill. And so on the waste management side, there's just a lot of interested people, I think, in seeing this this waste stream that is normally very, very hidden and just being curious. So you said you expanded now to Philadelphia. Are you planning to move to other cities, maybe in the tri-state area? In January of 2020, my co-founder and I were in Los Angeles and we were looking at warehouses and we were starting to interview potential team members there. And then everything shut down for COVID. So I think as a next step, I really would like to return to West Coast. I think that LA makes sense because there's such a hub of fashion design, fashion production, fashion schools there. And it does kind of extend our service on both coasts. After that, I really am sort of open to communities where there's somebody who feels like it would really make sense. You need both the industry who has all of this excess, and then you need the creative community who can use all of this excess, and Fabscrap can just be the connective tissue between the two. And so I think there's lots of cities in the world where that's possible. 
I don't necessarily feel like I need to be the one to make it happen in those cities. And so we're kind of interested in exploring what it would look like to franchise where people who know those industries, know those communities can connect it in the way that's right for those locations, but we can still keep the data consistent and we can still keep the messaging and sort of the operations consistent in a way where we can start to provide real value to wherever brands are operating. Sort of like a Salvation Army or a Red Cross, but just for this niche recycling of new fabric. Right. Because if you think about other countries where most of our garments are even made, like China, Vietnam, India, South America, I can only imagine how much more the waste will be in those countries. Right. What we're working with, and when we're picking up 6,000 pounds a week, we just hit our 1 millionth pound safe from landfill. We're only working with design. We're not working with the factories that do the production of the full runs of these garments. We're just working with the design office. So we're really like step one of the process. And this is waste of just step one. And so I think you're right, like in other parts of the world where production is happening and we're making 100,000 units or half a million units, like that is where there's huge potential for waste. And so I think that's something that like, I don't know as we grow if we'll move into production waste, but it's definitely something that working with brands at the design level, it makes them more aware throughout their supply chain of where there's potential for waste and where improvements can be made. So basically, if the designer says, I don't want 10 samples, send me one fit, one color. If I approve that, then send me the others. Because they control, they have more power over the factories, right? Right. We think that working with the brands is really important because the brands have the most leverage. They're the ones placing orders. That's where the customer shops. That's where the name recognition is. And so brands really have the most leverage and therefore like the most responsibility for putting some of these changes in action. Besides expanding to the West Coast, what are your next steps? Like we kind of touched on, I really am interested in pulling brands to the table and talking to them about how we can connect with their mills so that we can reduce waste in that sampling process. Because right now, yes, we recycle or we reuse, but in the three R's, the most important one is reduction. And so that's really something that I'm excited about in the next couple of years is now we have all of this information, we can categorize it and make recommendations that could really change how things are sampled and reduce waste in the process. So I think that that's the next step. And eventually I hope some of this information is useful in forming policy and we can be part of those conversations too. Thank you, Jessica, for all the work that you've done. This is really inspiring. When I connected with you, I thought this conversation would be something completely different and you've opened my eyes to the ways which I never thought existed. It's very hidden. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Mindful Businesses, produced and hosted by Vidya Ayer. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a voice note with your questions and comments to info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. Rate, subscribe, and review us on Apple Podcast. If you learned a thing or two from this episode, share it with one friend. We recorded this podcast in Lafayette, Indiana. 
Theme music is composed by Tatum Gale. Our marketing assistant is Caitlin Milligan. Our advisors are Jim Stone and Anupama Pashrija. This is Vidya Ayer with Mindful Businesses.